All right, turn with me, if you would, again to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2. Let's go ahead and stand as we once again honor the reading of the Word of God. Now, one similarity in Romans 2 is that we are again embarking on another long flow of thought. This is very typical in Paul's epistles, and it does us well to remember these are written as letters. They're not isolated verses. So to go through them and build on the themes is extremely helpful, and sometimes to backtrack to where we have been. But uh, we'll have to pick stopping points along the way, of course. And so uh, this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Let's go ahead and read. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest another. For whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. Thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath, Revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious word that you've not only inspired but preserved. Lord, here we stand thousands of years after these words were written in an entirely different language. Yet we can say we have the words of truth handed down to us. Father, help us to grow in our appreciation of that. And I pray again you'd help us as we go through uh, really these difficult and negative passages. That you would teach us what you would have us to learn on this trip through. That you'd strengthen our faith. That you'd give us eyes to see things as they really are. And Lord, again, I ask for your help. I thank you for the privilege of standing up and teaching your blessed word. And I pray that you would bless its teaching this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, I don't think it would be a stretch to assume that everybody here would say that they know some people that they would classify as good people. Now, I'm not talking about somebody who has been saved by the grace of God, and we know by their testimony, by their beliefs, and by their life uh, that they are indeed Christians. I'm not talking about the type of person who's casket you might stand over and say, I know this person belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ because of what they said and how they lived. But I'm talking about those people who naturally at least appear on the outside to be moral and upright people. They don't resemble this awful list that we finished talking about last time in Romans chapter 1. Now maybe they attend some sort of church. Maybe they're monotheistic at least. They believe there's only one God. They're generally trustworthy. They may be faithful to their spouse and pay their taxes. and Maybe they have a degree of patience that's commendable. I know I've known some people who, just naturally speaking, are patient people. I'm talking about non-Christians who naturally just don't get ruffled. You probably know some people like that. But yet the people I'm talking about are the ones that are still outside of Christ. Now, in this discussion of the condemnation of all mankind, where does this specific person fit into the discussion? It's hard to jam them into chapter 1 in the discussion that we just had last time. I mean, they don't quite 
fit that bill. Now, these people have always existed and in every age. And certainly the characteristics they exhibit in and of themselves are not bad things. But they also do not make them righteous in the sight of God. In Paul's day when Romans was written, the epitome of the moral, self-righteous, religious person was the proud Orthodox Jew who had nonetheless rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, here's a person who's familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. He's familiar with the generations of the words of the rabbis who were essentially the commentators who they really lifted to an elevation higher than the Bible, sadly. But this man was part of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He kept at least an outward form of morality. He was intensely monotheistic. You know, one of the things that the Babylonian captivity cured the Jews of was at least outward idolatry. After they returned from that, there was no more golden calves. And even to this day, the Orthodox Jews are intensely monotheistic, even to the point where they would say, you and I have three gods because we believe in the Trinity. Well, that's obviously not the case. Okay, so this self-righteous moral Jew believes there's one God. Okay, so far so good. He has no images of birds and beasts and creeping things that he bows down to. He's not guilty of the sexual immorality or the sodomy that was mentioned in the last chapter. He hasn't received in themselves that, that natural payback for living this type of life. Besides that, he would say he likes to retain God in his knowledge. He's quite comfortable in religious discussion. He has no problem discussing various religious nuances or even arguing about theology. Uh, furthermore, this downward spiral of sin in chapter 1 was largely a Gentile problem, and that's true. And so he stands at a distance and says, well, that's them. They don't have the written scriptures. They're the ones that descended into that depth of idolatry. And don't you dare try to pin that upon me. I mean, can you picture, we talked about chapter 1 was like a landslide of iniquity. Remember it began when man refused to acknowledge what God had said, and he willfully rebelled, which led to all the sins that came after. But picture in your mind, this landslide is occurring, and up here on a nearby ridge is standing this proud, religious, self-righteous, moral man. And he's watching this landslide occur, and he's, he, he's arrayed in his gorgeous pharisaical robe, his phylactery, you know, the little box that had rolled up parts of the Scripture, it's tightly fastened on his arm and on his forehead. His external garments are flawless. Here he is watching this landslide occur. I mean, maybe halfway through this landslide, he rends his garment to show his utter abhorrence for the sins that are being discussed. He's breathing words of approval as the Spirit of God unveils and condemns the stubborn, deliberate disobedience that's taking place within these people's hearts. As these flagrant rebels in chapter 1 crash to a halt at the bottom of the mountain, they're crushed beneath the, beneath the weight of God's displeasure. And all of a sudden, this religious moral man, he lifts up his eyes to heaven and begins to pray, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like these men. I pray, I fast, I do this, and I do that. But amazingly enough, these words are no sooner out of his mouth when all of a sudden we enter chapter 2 and the spotlight of divine omniscience zeroes down on him. He goes from being proud bystander watching this drama unfold 
to taking center stage and becoming exhibit B in this long discussion of why all men are guilty in the sight of God. It's like Paul's cannon. You know, Paul's standing behind the Spirit-inspired massive cannon, and he's been unloading shell after shell at the abominable sins of the Gentile world. And no sooner is that mission accomplished, the cannon has not even stopped smoking yet, and he swings that cannon around right up the mountainside, and he puts this religious moral man standing there thanking God he's not like other people, right in the crosshairs, and he pulls the trigger, and he begins to open fire on him. And that's really the shift we see between these two chapters. I mean, if you were to take out that chapter break, the change happens that quickly. It goes from them to him. And that's precisely what we see as the theme of Romans chapter 2. Okay, Romans 1 is the condemnation primarily of the Gentile world. Now that primarily dealt with those who did not have the word of God and they were guilty because of what they did with natural revelation. Now there's a lot of applications we made outside of that. Romans chapter 2 picks up a new theme, and the theme is God's condemnation to the self-righteous, religious, moral person. Because he's included in the discussion too. You know, if you and I are going to obey the Great Commission at all, we're going to have a lot of conversations with people, some that are strange, some that you walk away from going, what is that person talking about? Some leave you grieved in your soul. Some leave you hopeful that this person is close to at least embracing the truth. You'll run across atheists and people who are militantly hateful of God. You'll run across people who resemble what's going on in Romans chapter 1. They look like devils incarnate. But you're also going to run across these good people. The religious moral man. The man who outwardly seems to have it all together. And it's very instructive to see how Paul deals with this person. Now, just a few principles by, by way of introduction. Okay, number one. In this chapter, we're going to see Paul sees this person as just as much in need of the gospel as those mentioned in the last chapter. I mean, do we understand? Do we really believe that? Are we not sometimes guilty of saying, oh, so-and-so really needs Christ? And what we mean is they're extra bad. I mean, let's say you have two neighbors, okay? Neighbor over here. I mean, there's a procession of lewd women coming in and out of this man's house, staying for days or weeks and moving on. Every time he pulls up in his driveway, he's got half a truckload of booze on board that he unloads. At least every weekend, if not more, there's raucous parties hosted in his home. The music is so definitely loud, it actually knocks the pictures off the wall in your home. 400 feet away. You've spoken to this man a little bit. He can't string together three sentences without cursing the name of God and using profanity. On the other side, you've got the epitome of the religious moral man. You've got the model neighbor that everybody loves. His lawn is immaculate. His marriage seems wonderful and fulfilling. And people even like his dog. He's honest. He helps people. But you know, you find in conversations with him, whether politely or whether rudely, he's always resistant to the gospel of truth. Now tell me, do we not sometimes stand in a prayer meeting and say, I want to pray for this guy. He really needs Jesus. 
Do you know what Paul saw? There's no such thing as differentiating between two people who are lost and which one needs Christ more because they are both under God's condemnation. And he treated them that way. I mean, there's no half gospel that Paul preached to the halfway good person. There was no half condemnation he gave to somebody that seemed to have it all together. In fact, if you follow Paul's ministry, who was it that he went to first? Now, partly because the gospel was to come to the Jews, but as a class, everywhere Paul went, he dealt with the religious, moral, upright, seemingly righteous person first, everywhere he went. And did he find they were easy to deal with? On the contrary. Secondly, Paul was absolutely unimpressed with the religious display and their self-righteous condemnation of sin. You've heard it, haven't you? Someone who you know doesn't know Christ, and they pick up the newspaper, they watch the news, and they're going, oh, I just I can't believe the way people are these days. I just, I just can't believe that people raise their children that way. I mean, I just I can't believe that that politician lied to me. Now, they should be bothered by sin, but here's how Paul would have looked at that. Your bother for that, sir, is covering up for the fact that you are the same. And you're trying to deflect blame from you. I mean, one example, remember that whole Brian Williams scandal, NBC Nightly Anchor? He lies, he exaggerates, and he makes himself the hero of the story. And I always find it amusing when things like that occur, that the whole media jumps on and just wants to crucify the guy. But tell me, could you not help thinking in that, that 80% of these people that are on board trying to destroy this man's career have done the exact same thing? But see, the difference with Brian Williams is he got caught, so he must be a scoundrel. Let's let him have it. Thirdly, Paul sought to bring all of these people under the exact same umbrella of God's condemnation as the pagan Gentile world. And their terrible list of sins because he knew that was the only way they would be saved. Let's see how he begins. All right, verse 1. He begins with the premise that this religious moral man is also without excuse. Now, does that sound familiar? Remember how he hammered on that back in chapter 1? They were without excuse. Well, here he says the same thing to this religious moral man. He says, therefore... Thou art unexcusable. But notice he begins with the word therefore. Now what's that doing? That's linking it back to the flow of thought from the previous chapter. All of us have heard it. It's worth repeating. When you see the word therefore in the Bible, see what it's there for. When you see that to begin a chapter, obviously the flow of thought doesn't start there. He's building on the case he's already started to build back in chapter 1. So he says, all right, because the Gentile world is condemned... Because they've hardened their heart, and that capstone in in verse 32 at the end of that chapter, that they know the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, they don't care. They do the same, and they have pleasure in them that do them. And he says, therefore, because of that, you, religious moral man, are also without excuse. The last chapter was because of their willful rejection of natural revelation, the choosing of idols. But just as this bystander's whispering amen to the justice of God are turning them over, 
God turns to him and says, you are also without excuse. Now the reason was given in the previous chapter and the reason is also given here. We'll get to that in a minute. I just want to take a quick side trail and notice how this religious moral man is addressed. Okay, thou art inexcusable, O man. Now that's the Greek word anthropos, the general word for human beings, okay? Nothing spectacular about that. But what he's doing, he's saying a whole lot more than just affirming this happens to be a human being he's talking about. I know I couldn't read this without thinking of Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. Remember? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? He calls him, O man, in contradistinction to God. In other words, don't forget your dependent creaturehood. He's saying, you are inexcusable, O dependent creature made out of the dust, and don't forget your place. And he defines him as, whosoever thou art the judgest. Now again, this, this is not talking about all kinds of judgment. This is another favorite verse of false teachers today that want to take away all sort of discernment from Christians. That's not what it's talking about. The type of, the type of judgment here is talking about condemnation. It's talking about proud accusations. It's talking about the heart that is saying, sick them to God because you want Him to have these people's hides. That's what it's talking about. All right, back to the question, though. Why are they without excuse? For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. He says, to the same degree that you condemn others... You pronounce your own doom upon your own head because you do the same things. Now think about this for a minute. For them to point out sin in other people, for the religious moral man to say God needs to judge that person, think about what that insinuates about him. Okay, first of all, and we see this borne out later in the chapter, this person has to have at least some knowledge of the Word of God. He has to have at least some knowledge of God's character and justice and coming judgment. This person has at least some idea of what sin looks like. And this person is rightly able, and I say rightly, they're able to recognize some people who justly deserve the wrath of God. The problem with this man isn't that he's saying they deserve God's wrath. That's true. That's what the passage is saying. The problem is he's so shockingly blind to his own hypocrisy that he thinks he's a cut above because of who he is, because of his intrinsic merit, because of the list he keeps or because of where he was born or what he does or whatever else. Now notice a couple of characteristics of a religious, moral, lost person. First of all, they tend to view others as more deserving of God's judgment than themselves. And keep in mind, this may not come out the mouth. But make no mistake, this type of person, no matter how nice they may seem, no matter how moral, no matter how upright, going on in this heart of theirs, if they do not obey the gospel of Christ, is this constant factory of putting other people below them when it comes to God's justice. That's what's happening. Secondly, they are blind to their own hypocrisy. I mean, are there any case studies of that in the New Testament anywhere? Well, they're all over the place. I made allusion a minute ago with this proud religious man's prayer of the publican in Luke 18. You remember? He stands there and he sees this, or the Pharisee, he sees the publican and he's, he's thanking God he's not like other people. 
Well, how about the rich young ruler? Here's a passive example. I mean, he wasn't rabid, but he comes to Christ and says, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a great question. Jesus tells him, keep the law. Remember his answer? All these have I observed from my youth up. You see, in his view, he was righteous concerning the law. He hadn't broke any of them. And Jesus tells him, go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. He wasn't prescribing that as a way of salvation. He was prescribing that as a way of condemnation. Here's what he's saying. You remember the two tables of the law? The first table is summed up this way. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and mind and soul and strength. And what's the second? Love thy neighbor as thyself. So Jesus sends this man away and says, you have shattered the spirit of the entire second half of the Decalogue, so don't stand here and tell me how righteous you are, because you're not. But he went away sorrowful. As far as we know, never came back. How about some rabid examples? John chapter 9, the Lord Jesus heals the blind man who'd been born that way. Remember, and eventually he's interrogated. It's kind of a, a really a funny dialogue, in a way. I mean, these people look like total fools. And they're asked, I mean, they don't, first they don't believe he's born blind. And then they ask his parents. He says, yeah, he's born blind. They said, how did it happen? His parents said, I don't know, ask him. Because they didn't want to get kicked out. And so they keep asking him, how did it happen? He's like, I already told you. And then he asks them, well, are you going to believe on him too? And then he begins to show them how marvelous of a thing this was. He's saying, open your eyes and look. Remember their answer? Thou wast altogether born in sins, and dost thou teach us? What was that showing? You don't have the right to say anything. Who do you think you are? Look at us up here. Look at our robes. Look at our scrolls. Look at our accomplishments. Don't you dare tell me that I'm wrong. Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was stoned. He gives this long sermon on Jewish history. Tremendous sermon. But then at the end, he opens fire on them. You remember some of the words? He's showing them how the Jews had rejected the plan of God through the centuries. And then he says, ye uncircumcised. He calls them stiff-necked. And he says, you always resist the Holy Ghost, just like your fathers did. And he continued that volley for a moment and it says, when they heard these words, they were cut to the heart. But instead of going over to the repentant side when they were cut, they stopped their ears, gnashed on him with their teeth, ran upon him with one accord, and buried him under a volley of rocks. Why? Because they were the epitome of the chapter 2 individual. You say all you want about religion. You condemn everybody you want to. You affirm that mankind's not perfect, but you come in and pierce my conscience, and you better watch out. Last night, late last night, I received a text as I was thinking about this message from a dear friend of mine who does state fair ministry. And he has a heart for doing it right, by the way. He's not out to rack up numbers of empty professions of faith. He wants to see people converted. And he'll often use the law to do that, show them their sin. But I remember some time ago, he, was, he had sent a prayer request. He was down in the heart of Mormon country in Utah. And I don't remember what city he was in, but I remember him texting and asking for prayer. And Later on, I heard the story. He'd actually gotten up out of his booth, and he'd charged into the bathroom, 
and he locked himself in that stall, and he got on his knees on that tile, and he's pleading with God for discernment and spiritual power because of what was going on outside. And you know what was going on outside? God was opening doors. And he had several of these affluent, cultured, self-righteous Mormon men. And he began to probe their conscience. And some of them literally became red in the face. And they're clenching their teeth in fury, saying, How dare you accuse me of being like that? It's exactly what's taking place here. See, the religious moral person doesn't mind talking about sin in general terms. But you bring it home to show them their own flagrant rebellion against God. And mister, you're kicking a hornet's nest. But it has to happen. It's got to happen. Now Paul says here that thou that judgest doest the same things. Now here's what's important to understand. Okay, You can just hear this person rising up in opposition saying, I do not do the same things. I've never been a sodomite. I've never had multiple partners. I've never bowed down to a lizard. Here's what he's saying, though. He's saying, in character, the fundamental quality of your life, the nature of your existence, though you may not show all of that, the character of your life is no different in the sight of God. He says, you are inexcusable because you are fundamentally just as condemned in the sight of God. And don't you forget it. I mean, in whose sight are you righteous? Hmm? That's a good question to ask. Do you want to be righteous in whose sight? Do you want to be righteous in God's sight? Because out of that righteousness He gives you, out of that you want to manifest to the world you belong to Jesus? Or are you so concerned about what others think about you? Is it that other people think you're spiritual? Other people think you're having your devotions? Other people think you're faithful to church or whatever else? Or do you care about God's opinion more than anybody else? I mean, how are we going to help our deluded friends see rightly here? Well, it's going to happen by drawing his attention to the standard of God's judgment. Tell me, if you were to you go in our community and, and have a survey, by what standard is God going to judge? Boy, would you hear some answers. I mean, aside from those who deny it's going to happen, everybody has all sorts of ideas how God's going to judge. And amazingly enough, a high percentage of them would have a way God's going to judge that somehow misses them, right? Verse 2, but we are sure what? The judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. While it's true that the truth shall set you free, that is wonderful. Let me tell you what else the truth will do. The first thing the truth will do is open a cannon fire upon the foundations of your own intrinsic human merit and blow it to smithereens before the truth will ever set you free. The truth is inflexible. It's unchanging. It's no respecter of persons. It doesn't bend for situational ethics. Truth accepts no excuses, and it cannot be bribed or fooled. God judges the truth according to truth. It doesn't mean it's according to man's appearance or what people's opinions were of you. His judgment is according to the true nature of your life. Now think about it this way. We've talked some about 
God's restraining of sin. Let's say you take two people. Let's say one of them purposes in his heart he's going to rob a bank. The other one does the same. Okay, one of them, the restraints of God are so great that God blocks his progress and the deed never happens. You've got another one. God lets him go. He robs the bank. If you were to sit both of these men down, you could say rightfully, this one robbed the bank, this one did not. This one could proclaim his innocence. You could also just as equally proclaim both of them robbed the bank because that was what came out of the corrupted heart. You realize God's going to judge people not just on what they did, but what they tried to do, the motive of the heart that He prevented them from doing? If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Christ, let me tell you something. Not only have you earned God's condemnation for what you've done, there's a whole litany of evil things God hasn't let you do that He's also not forgotten. And He knows what monsters all of us would be if He didn't intervene and prevent us from becoming that. I mean, how do fallen sinners typically justify their sinfulness? Well, maybe on the argument of universality of sin. You ever heard that one? Oh, nobody's perfect, right? There's going to be sort of this deflection of blame. Some may justify their actions based on degrees of sin. I'm not as bad as others. Circumstances of sin. I mean, there was a good reason to do what I did. The motive for sin. God knows my heart, says some. The counterbalancing of sin. I mean, maybe my good will outweigh my bad. The consequences of sin. This is a big one. God hasn't destroyed me yet. He must be happy, right? Business is going good. Health is fine. I mean, obviously God must be thrilled. Isn't human nature a funny thing? I mean, aren't we good at dancing around truth, and then when truth comes home and pegs us to the wall, we have all sorts of gymnastics we do to get out of it. All sorts of excuses. Remember, years ago when I was a fishing guide in southwest Alaska for many years at our family business, if you've ever been involved in the tourism industry, you know it, it gives you a tremendous window into human nature. I mean, you, you answer the same questions, and you deal with the same things and same types of people, essentially, over and over and over. And one of the rivers we used to fish, I went there probably more than any other river, a small little salmon stream full of kings, you know. And almost every hole in this river had some big, huge snag in it somewhere. I mean, that's what makes the holes good a lot of times. And so my pattern was, is we'd run up river, and I'd, and I'd unload these eager beavers all ready to knock each other over to get to the water first, and I'd say, all right, look, First of all, let me show you the fish behavior in this hole. And secondly, let me show you where the snag is. Okay, you see that overhanging branch or you see that clump of grass? Right in front of that's a big snag. It's eating a lot of my gear. Please don't fish there. Trust me. You know, now some people were better than others, but in every single group, there was at least one who just couldn't believe the guy who'd been there hundreds of times. Remember one particular group, nice guys, okay? But the night before, I had tied 30 new leaders of fish with the next day. And by the time these three guys got done fishing, I had one left. They broke off 29 times on snags, every one of which I told them were there. And you know, you see out of the corner of your eye, the guy's are he's doing this, and he's doing this, and he's hoping the guy doesn't see, you know. <laughs> and I look over at him, I said, you got the snag, didn't you? And I always heard one of three excuses. Excuse number one, I think I was getting a bite first, so I kept fishing there. Excuse number two was, I thought the log was further downstream. Excuse number three, 
Well, I've drifted over it a bunch and I haven't caught it yet. I'd say, now let me ask you a question. Do any of those excuses change the fact that there's a massive log lying in the river and that you are now hooked to it? And they kind of sheepishly shake their head, but it's the same line of logic that human nature fights against. None of these excuses, none of these arguments change the indisputable fact that God has said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And that principle makes no exception for amount of sin or longevity of sin or sins that God has stopped you from doing before you went further. It's a universal principle. The man says, I don't like it. God says, I don't care what you like. I'm judging according to truth. And that's not going to bend. One sin is sufficient to be condemned and to miss the mark. And by the way, this is why the use of the law, I've already made reference to it, is so important in the work of evangelism. I honestly cringe when all somebody knows about sin is Romans 3.23. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. That's outstanding. What is sin? Does the average person in this country have any concept of what sin looks like? No. And so you take the moral law, which is given uh, to define transgression and as a schoolmaster to bring men to Christ. You couple it with the New Testament expansions on that. Things like lust of the heart is fundamentally the same as adultery. Hating a person is the same as murder. And this is especially critical in dealing with the upright, moral, self-righteous person who is going to resist you probing his conscience. But it's as you apply the spirit of the law like Christ did so many times that it comes home and shows them, hey, wait a minute, I'm just as bad as them. And that's the goal of this whole discussion. Now, Paul... In light of the fact that God judges according to truth, he asks two pointed questions to this religious moral person. And they're designed to take his focus off of others and their condemnation and to examine himself. And by the way, these are both excellent questions to ask. Might I say they're far better than who wants to go to heaven? Because these get down to brass tacks where the issue really lies. All right, question number one, Paul asks him. We find it in verse three. How do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? It's a good question. The answer is very revealing. In fact, he says, uh, how do you, O man, that does the same things? In other words, he's saying, how do you, mortal hypocrite, be careful how you say that, think that you will escape God's judgment? If the law has been applied to them, if they see any inkling of what they are, the question is leveled at them. Alright, how are you going to escape? Now think of all the ways a person can escape the human legal system. Alright, their crime may never be discovered. They may escape beyond the jurisdiction of the court and they can't be extradited. Uh, the statute of limitations may expire. After their arrest, some legal technicality may enter the picture that causes a breakdown in the legal system and they're released. There could be poor judgment on the part of human judge and jury and a wrongful acquittal. They could plead either temporary or permanent insanity. They could enter some sort of plea bargain where they turn on one of their cohorts or something else and either get less of a sentence or no sentence. After their conviction, they may somehow escape the prison and remain in hiding. Now tell me something. Do any of these apply 
when the judge is a righteous, just, and holy God whose eyes are in every place, who has all power, who has all memory, and who will by no means clear the guilty? The answer to that should be no. The design of this question is to bring someone to say, I don't know how I'm going to escape God's judgment. Well, friend, there's one way of escape. And let me tell you his name, right? Even if you live 10,000 years, do you realize the wrath from the sin you committed 9,940 years ago will not have diminished one single iota? Ever wonder the fearful condemnation of men when they lived in Noah's day to be 900 years old? You talk about a weight of judgment on your head. All right, question number two. This is also an excellent question to ask. Why do you think that God is presently showing you His goodness? It's a good question to ask somebody. Why is God showing you His goodness? Well, deep within the self-righteous heart of every single person alive apart from God is the notion that we deserve God's blessings. I mean, isn't that true? That intrinsically happens in a sinful heart. I find it interesting. I don't do it. I haven't done it so much here, but I used to do it in Alaska all the time. You know, and maybe I've shared this before, but it's revealing. You People at the checkout line or wherever else, how are you doing today? And I'd say, oh, better than I deserve. For one, it reminded me it's true, no matter how bad my day seems. But the response it brought out of people was amazing. More than one professing Christian tried to talk me out of that statement to tell me how much I deserve God's goodness. And I thought, what planet are you living on? I don't even know myself like God knows, but I know enough to know I deserve nothing. And if He never blesses me again, I have no reason to complain. But yet it's His heart to do so. Well, now only a blind pessimist would deny that God gives blessings. But look how the, look how the question is framed. Despisest thou the riches? In other words, do you think lightly of the great wealth of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering towards you specifically? Are you making light of it? Okay, God's goodness, that's His kindness. That, of course, He's self-motivated to do. He does it because that's who He is. God's forbearance is the fact that He's withholding wrath. Long-suffering is God's long-term patience, the fact that He hasn't cast our sorry carcasses out of the universe. And He's saying... Do you really look at these precious three gemstones coming down from the Father of Lights that God shows you His goodness, that He hasn't hurled you into hell, and that He's put up with your stubbornness and stupidity and complaining and sinfulness and hard-heartedness and everything else? He says, do you look at that and treat it lightly? Someone says, no, I don't don't treat it lightly. Well, how do you treat it lightly? Well, there's three ways. Okay, one is to either ignore or deny it. There's lots of people who do that. I mean, there's a rainbow outside. They don't know who to thank. You know, organisms combining did that. Panspermia caused that or whatever else. Second way to despise it is to think that you deserve them. This is a fundamental mistake that people make by nature. God blesses them. God gives them a green light when they're running late. God gives them a check in the mailbox when they needed it. God sends encouragement. God gives them a vehicle. God does any number of things. They look at the faces of their children. 
They look at the blessing of a, of a faithful wife. They look at the roof over their head and they look at the beauty of creation and they appreciate it, but they make the fundamental mistake of saying, I must have deserved this. A song that drove me nuts years ago and still does. One of these popular CCM songs. The only reason I heard it is because my job would play this all the time. There's a song, Butterfly Kisses, and I heard that I don't know how many times. But the fundamental theological error in that, it pictures a dad, he's walking his daughter down the aisle at her wedding day, and then he says this, with all that I've done wrong, I must have done something right to deserve absolutely false. You think that song is rejected by the professing Christian world? Oh, no, no, no. Why? Because so many of them have a form of godliness, and they think they deserve it too. God says, absolutely not. Third way to despise it, all right, there's ignoring it, there's thinking you deserve it. Number three, and this is a big one, this is the capstone, rejecting the one central reason that the goodness of God is shown. You could also ask somebody, why do you think God's showing you His goodness? Let me tell you the one reason. God's not showing you His goodness to affirm your life. He's not doing it to pat you on the back. He's not doing it because you deserve it. God is showing His goodness because the goodness of God is designed to lead you, sir, to repentance. God's not going to drive you from behind like an animal, but He's going to deal with you like a rational creature, and He's going to lure you and pull you, and God's first line of reasoning with somebody is goodness. God expects people to actually look around at the goodness of God manifested all around them and make the conclusion... Oh, what a good God I've despised. Oh, what a merciful God I've mistreated. What a loving and gracious God I've ignored. I think I need to trust Him and follow Him. That's the purpose for God's goodness and nothing else. That's why it's shown according to this text. In reality, and lastly... The religious moral man is storing something up all right. I mean, he'll tell you he's storing up heavenly treasures and he'll tell you he's uh, storing up favor with God. But according to verse 4, he's not storing up... Or verse 5, he's not storing up favor or heavenly riches. He's storing up divine wrath upon his head. And this, if we let this picture sink into our mind, this is a, it's a horrifying picture. He says, after thy hardness and impenitent heart. Now, doesn't that sound chapter 1-ish? Their heart's been turned over. They refuse to repent. And he's now saying to the religious moral man, listen, you are hard and impenitent too. The word hard or hardness, it, it means they have no softness or tenderness towards God. They may have it towards people. They may have it towards religion. They may have it towards puppies or little kittens that are stuck in trees. But when it comes down to brass tacks of what the God of the universe has said concerning them, they say thumbs down. In fact, the word literally means to not be able to make an impression. You know, you push on your skin and it leaves an impression. He says God pushes on them. It doesn't do anything. Their heart's hard. Impenitent means unrepentant. You remember the discussion in 2 Corinthians 7? Paul's talking to the church at Corinth, and he's actually commending them for exercising true repentance. And in that discussion, he's laying out the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, or godly repentance versus that which is fake. And one of the things he essentially is saying is godly sorrow 
That is kind of a mouthful, but it's a good way to remember it. It produces a sorry with which you're never sorry for being sorry. In other words, godly sorrow makes you sorry towards God, sorry for your sins, sorry for offending Him, and you never get over that. Godly sorrow is temporary and short. It has to do with what I'm going to suffer, what people are going to think about me. But true repentance is not just feeling sorry or it's attempting to atone for sin. It's not penance. Do you realize that this Sunday morning, just here in Helena, there are probably multitudes of people. They might be shedding tears. They might be in a confessional booth telling their sins to a guy with a backwards collar. They might be eating pieces of bread thinking that's going to fix their relationship to God. They might be repeating vain repetitious prayers or doing some other number of things to fix their sinfulness. That is not repentance. Do you know a person can be shedding tears doing that kind of thing and be as hard as a stone towards God? Because those things are a mechanism, a shell, to divert attention from what's really going on in the heart. And they can still be miles away from Christ, acting religious, doing penance, as the neighbor I mentioned a while ago, with all of his parties and wickedness. It would be the same thing. True repentance produces a change of mind that results in a change of life. It produces a change of mind that results in a change of life towards sin, towards self, towards God, towards His Word, towards the way I should live, towards what motivates me, what I love, what I hate. That's what real repentance produces. You know, calling that being born again is no misnomer. God's remaking your heart and mind. Those, might I say, are the fruits of somebody who's been born of God. But here's what hardness and impenitence produce. And notice, there's no accident he uses the word treasurist. He says, you're treasuring something up. Okay, you despise the riches of goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. You're gathering a, a payload for sure. You're gathering a treasure. But let me tell you what it is. After your hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up wrath. Here's the picture. Every sin this person commits, there's this rising tidal wave above their head. And every blasphemy, and every adultery, and every perverse thought of the heart, and every disobedience to parents, and whatever else they commit, it makes that tidal wave rise higher and higher and higher. Or you could picture each person has an eternal bonfire sitting on their head, waiting to be let loose. And every time they sin against the living God, if they're not a Christian, they take another piece of uh, kindling and they throw it on top of that pile. And throughout their life, that pile grows until someday it's let loose. He says, you're treasuring up wrath in the bank of iniquity until payday. But friend... Payday is coming. Payday is coming. He says these things are uh, treasured up. Until a day that's characterized by two fearful descriptions. Okay, Number one, it's a day of wrath. The floodgates of God's forbearance have been straining on the fence posts. And eventually they'll open up and the dam will break open. And the day that the world has been aware of all along but suppressed the knowledge will be here. 
The mystery of iniquity will have reached full blossom. The wrath of God's going to explode upon creation with omnipotent fury. And men who dared to stand in the place of God and pass the wrong sort of judgment will find themselves overwhelmed by the same judgment, but infinitely greater. They may be storing up treasures in the sight of men, but God's not impressed. Secondly, it's the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In other words, it's going to be clearly displayed that the sentence of the sovereign king is absolutely right and according to truth. You know when God passes judgment, there's not going to be one single dissenting opinion? Not one. Because every mouth is going to be stopped on that day, and the only mouths allowed to speak are going to be speaking truth. And you find them in the book of Revelation, among other places. What are the angels doing when God is pouring out His justice on, on the fallen world? Thou art righteous, O Lord, because Thou hast judged us. What are the redeemed saints doing? How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost Thou not avenge our blood on them that dwell in the earth? Not one person or angel is going to be trying to hold God back, but they're going to be in perfect assent because God is judging according to truth. And the angels that have not fallen... And the people who have been redeemed, they recognize that, and they're on board with God. And all who are not are hurled out of His presence forever. Just in closing, just a couple thoughts. Could it be, I know most of you, could it be there's one of these self-righteous, moral, upright people here? It's not wrong to be moral and upright. It's not wrong to be righteous in your life. Those are commendable things. But maybe you sit here, maybe you were raised in a Christian home, maybe you're being raised in a Christian home. You hear all the talk about sin, and it really doesn't apply to you. I mean, you're not that bad. You hear about hell, and you're thinking, yeah, well, that's what they deserve. It comes to examining your own heart, and you're full of deflection, trying to aim the blame at everybody else. When you look at your life, someone would not say you've been born again because you don't manifest the characteristics of somebody who's born of God. If that's you, might I plead with you to deal with God in truth? You can choose to be judged according to truth now, or you can choose to let God do the judging. But the judgment's going to happen. You can choose to fall on the stone and be broken, or you can let the stone fall on you and be ground to powder. But God's Word will stand. Secondly, it's so important dealing with this type of person that we have got to view them like God does and like Paul does. It's not that there's nothing commendable, but we've got to see behind the veneer if they will not believe the gospel, this is who they are in the sight of God. And we're not going to deal with them by encouraging them in their self-righteousness. We're not going to deal with them by fancying that, well, they must be close to God now because just look how nice they are. The truth is, in due time, as God opens that door, they need to be confronted with these types of questions. 
Sir, do you realize you are just as without excuse in the sight of God? You know, after years of working in the prison ministry, one of the things I love about it is so many of these people don't have to be convinced they're sinful. But it's amazing some of the viewpoints of other people you talk to. I mean, more than one time, someone would hear about that. They'd say, oh, you, you minister at the prison. Yes, I do. And you'd get the exact type of person I'm talking about here. And here's what they'd say. Oh, I'm, I'm so glad you go out there. Those people really need that. I mean, their life is such a mess that they really need good people like you to go and really help them out. I remember one particular conversation. I turned to them. I said, you know, the amazing thing is they're a criminal behind bars, but all of us are criminal outside of bars. But do you know something? I'm not there because I think they need the gospel more. I'm there because they're more willing to listen. And you and I are just as guilty in the sight of God as that person locked away for a heinous crime. And boy, did I get a blank stare out of that one. But it's true. These people need to be confronted with questions like, how are you going to escape God's judgment? Has anybody ever showed you what sin is from God's perspective? Because guess what? His perspective is the only one in the dictionary when this earth is over. Why is God showing you His goodness, sir? Has anybody ever explained to you the reason why God is so good to you? Has anybody ever showed you that? Let me show you what your real treasures are right now and what needs to happen. That's the kind of message this person needs to hear. I know we can't cram that down their throat. I realize that. But this is the way we ought to pray at least about these types of people and make sure we're not in the same boat. Let's pray. Father, I thank you you do speak to us so clearly about so many different conditions of the heart. Father, I pray for those in this community that are this type of person. They cling to their own righteousness, their own religion, their own viewpoint, or whatever else. Yet they're resistant to the truth. They will not see themselves as sinners. Father, I pray you'd give us spiritual wisdom and guidance to deal with them to love their souls, to bear along with them just like you have, to patiently plant the truth and water and hopefully watch it bear fruit and grow. And Father, I pray for all those sitting here. Lord, you are the searcher of hearts. And I pray, Lord, if there's one or more here that can understand what I'm saying and yet sits with a stiff neck and a stubborn heart and refuses to humble themselves before you, I pray, Father, they would see this has nothing to do with the preacher. This has nothing to do with other men's opinions. But their enmity is against you. And I pray, Father, you would break down that wall and shatter it to pieces. I pray, Lord, you'd bring them a conviction of sin that would just decimate their own self-righteousness in their own sight. And I pray you'd help them to flee to Christ, to escape the wrath that's to come. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a way of escape to whosoever will. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat>